Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burr. Today we speak to author, journalist, and former presidential speechwriter David Frum about the global impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine 40 days after it began. We speak to a Ukrainian MP about allegations of war crimes against Russia after the bodies of civilians are found on the streets of the Kyiv suburb after Russian forces were driven out. We hear about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from a Canadian who's the lead author of one of the chapters in the third and final report in this latest installment from the IPCC. But first, with COVID numbers on the rise again in provinces such as Ontario and BC, where the Premier today, John Horgan, confirmed he tested positive for the virus, we ask an epidemiologist about the threat of a new variant and why he's so anxious about the future, as anxious as he's been at any time during the pandemic. I bring this up because we're starting to see COVID numbers go up again a bit here in BC. Today, the Premier who just underwent cancer treatment, announced that he had contracted COVID-19. John Horgan said on Twitter that he'd received the test results early today. Quote, fortunately, my symptoms are mild, and that is thanks to being fully vaccinated. He also said, I'm following public health guidance, isolating and working from home. Over a three-day period, BC is reporting 728 new cases, up from 556 last week, this time last week and 321 people in hospital. That's up from 288 this time last week. Meantime, in Ontario, they reported 857 hospitalizations today, and that's an increase of about 30% from this time last week. Premier Doug Ford says the province is in the midst of a, quote, little spike of COVID-19, but that it is prepared. Ford says the province has added more acute care beds and now has antiviral pills available. We're going to continue to be cautious. I follow the advice of the chief medical officer, uh, but our hospitals are in good shape right now. We we expected a little spike. Uh, we said that over the last month. But again, that little spike, we're being able to manage it. Ontario Premier Doug Ford there. So what is the state of the pandemic? Are we really seeing just a, quote, little spike or something more serious with this new Omicron variant BA2? Joining me now is Colin Furness. He's an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. Colin, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks. So I guess just a state of the union. What are we seeing suddenly in the last uh, few weeks when it comes to when it comes to COVID infections, especially with this new variant? Well, the new variant really is what we're seeing. It's BA2, which is a variation on Omicron. It doesn't appear to be more intrinsically virulent or dangerous, but it is a lot more contagious. And let's be clear, Omicron, especially if you're not vaccinated, Omicron is a dangerous virus for many. I have been seeing, just anecdotally, we saw the Premier of BC announce that he had tested positive for COVID today. I've, I've seen many more people, just anecdotally, friends, you know, people I know on social media reporting positive tests. Is, is, that, uh, is that what you're seeing as well? Are we seeing a trend now of, of an upward swing? Certainly in Ontario, it's, it's pretty hard to find people who don't have someone in their immediate circle who's had it or perhaps themselves. My view is with what we know, about COVID transmission, if you are going unmasked in public places indoors, you can expect to have COVID. If not, if not this week, then next week or the week after. So it is, it is that prevalent and that contagious. Now, of course, a lot of places uh, began lifting these protections a while back uh, based on their assessment of where Omicron was going. How much should we be reassessing that given uh, BA2? I think the lifting of restrictions was really not based on an assessment of Omicron. We've seen this before, and it's, it's not a big surprise, and that's, that's uh, almost a year ago uh, with what was then the third wave, that there was a new variant that was ascending as the old one was descending. And if you looked at those two graphs separately, you realized that we simply were on a pause and it was coming right back up. We've known that too for Omicron. That's been pretty clear with, with classic Omicron and now this BA2 variant that is more contagious. So we've known for many weeks that this was going to happen. And the debate has simply been when and how big. And I think we're starting to get a better idea that when is soon and now. And it looks, it's not clear, but it looks like, it, unfortunately, it, it could be sizable. With the mask mandates lifted, we knew there was going to be a jump, I think. Um, and that was, I, I assume, that was the cost that, that 
that public health officials were had already taken into consideration. Do you think that was? Do you think that's the, that's the case? I think the decision was was a political one. I don't think anyone who understands communicable disease would follow that logic and say, yes, this is a good idea. And the reason for that is, and this is just communicable disease, this is how it works. The more cases you have, the more cases you get. It runs out of control extraordinarily quickly. So to have a plan and to glibly say, oh, we expect there to be increases, but it'll be manageable, that doesn't make sense. When you have a communicable disease that increases, it gets out of control. And this, of course, has happened again and again. This is this is not some hypothetical. This is exactly what we've been doing with every wave is we've created the conditions where it can increase and then we lose control. So that logic doesn't make sense unless you're a politician. And if you're a politician and you want to be the purveyor of good news, you want to be the person who ended the pandemic, you want to be the purveyor of the good news that we don't need to wear masks anymore. If that's what you want to do, then this was a reasonable decision to make. But it wasn't. Do we even have a clear picture anymore of how many people have COVID? We can estimate it really crudely using wastewater signals. And we wastewater analysis is very new. It's it's certainly not something I know that much about. But you can if you if you can go back to when we did know uh, roughly how many people had COVID. And remember, we've never detected and diagnosed every case, but we knew we were getting about one in four. So we could multiply that. Now we think maybe we're diagnosing one in 10, maybe, but that's a lot less clear. But if we can compare when we did know with more certainty to wastewater signals, we can get a sense of these levels mean something, but wastewater signals will vary in different regions. It, it, you only get a really rough idea. And, and unfortunately that rough idea is probably well north of 30 to 40,000 cases a day in Ontario alone. So it's, it's, it's running pretty high. That being said, I, I noticed that from BC statistics, at least, that hospitalizations have leveled off. I mean, all the danger signs that we were looking for earlier in this pandemic seem to have reduced a bit now. Is that just a pause, do you think? I think it is, unfortunately. We saw the same thing in Ontario and hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging indicator. It takes many weeks from a virus to really start to climb in order to infect enough people and enough people severely so that you really notice it in hospital admissions. And Ontario numbers are all up. And it's they're particularly up in pediatrics, particularly under five, particularly under two. Um, those, those tiny bodies have a really hard time. They can't be vaccinated. And so they're, they're maximally susceptible to, to a severe outcome. Not everyone has a severe outcome, but uh, we can't predict that. And so that's obviously really, really concerning. So unfortunately, I think you can expect that to rise. The language, the political language in Ontario has been, we'll be able to manage it. But I think the scientific understanding is we can't say that. We don't know. We don't know how big this is going to be because we don't know our existing immunity because we stopped measuring. So we're, we're in a blind place, hoping for the best and just not planning for what might be worse. I would imagine that someone in your position, an infection control epidemiologist, does not want to be in a blind place when it comes to an epidemic. Personally, I think my anxiety has never been higher. When I know what's going to happen next, and I can talk about it clearly, what we, what's going to happen next, it gives you agency. It gives you something that you can do. Instead, we're waiting, and I see this diverging epistemology of people who are doubling down that COVID is nothing, and people who are getting more and more frightened. And there's no reasonable middle ground, which is too bad, because we should all be standing in the reasonable middle ground, saying, we understand the threat, and we understand that it's airborne, and we understand basic things we can do uh, in order to prevent that from happening. So it, it's, it's, it's a pretty frustrating place to be for me. What would you like to see done to ease a bit of that frustration, understanding that politically, of course, we now look across the country and see that there is a significant proportion of the population that seems to be done with these protections. Well, you know, they say that fear has a very short half-life in health behavior change. And I, I see that's true again and again. Unfortunately, we may need to see catastrophic numbers, hospitalizations, in order to be shaken out of this complacency. And I, I, I hope I hope it doesn't come to that. But I, I agree. There is a, just a huge amount of fatigue. And, you know, that's a problem. We saw the same thing, by the way, 100 years ago at the end of Spanish flu, was people just stopped caring after a while and, and disease rates rose. That last wave was the worst. So, it, it's, 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 in a sense, I guess, possibly inevitable. But I, I also have to say, I think there's a failure of the imagination and public health decision making to plan for a sustainable way forward. 
every time I hear we've just got to live with COVID, that's code for we've got to do nothing at all and let there be a lot of suffering and, and even death among vulnerable people. And I, as a Canadian, I just I find that I find that unacceptable. Learning to live with COVID needs to be, and this is to answer your question, a commitment to indoor air quality standards. That's that's the sustainable way forward. We can't wear masks forever. We can't be under pandemic restrictions or protections forever. Of course not. We need to find the way forward. Let's admit COVID's airborne because we haven't, not in policy. Some politicians have let it slip, but not in policy. Let's let's mandate indoor air quality standards. No one's freedom was ever trampled upon. No one ever got, had to get in a truck and drive because someone plugged in the HEPA filter. So there are things we can do, I think, that we can all agree are a good idea as long as we live up to the science and admit that COVID's airborne. We need to embrace N95 masks for those times when we do need to mask because that's the only one that's going to work uh, reliably. I'm speaking with Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. We're talking about the current state of COVID-19. We're seeing what we think is a rise in cases again, uh, specifically linked to a new variant, BA2. We're discussing what sort of uh, measures can be put in place to try to uh, mitigate those risks. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit about masks in general because they become a very divisive issue. Uh, but there are ways to protect yourself if you're in public, if you're in a public place. Uh, we'll talk a bit about what the most effective ways to do that will, will be, are, after this. I'm back with Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. We've been talking about what we perceive to be another rise in cases of COVID, uh, specifically linked to a new variant, BA2, but also to the easing of protections such as mask mandates and vaccine passports and so on. Um Colin, we're in the middle right now, I think, of this transition away from a lot of these protections that were in place. Would you halt them at this point? I mean, for instance, BC is looking at lifting its vaccine passport very very soon. Uh, Mask mandates were lifted in schools uh, when students went back. Are these the sorts of things that you would ask public health officials to reassess now? I think all of those interventions should be critically assessed all the time, and they should be improved when they can, as well as being removed when they aren't. We've got some interventions that don't make a lot of sense. One of them is the symptomatic screening that really doesn't affect anything, and, and it's a pretty gigantic nuisance. Um, we, When we mandate masks, if we're not mandating the right masks, then we're placing a huge burden on people without getting much benefit from it. So that's a badly implemented uh, intervention. As for vaccine cert- cert- certificates and proof of vaccination, that's been implemented so badly. I get it. It's a giant burden on businesses. It confuses Every first time I went out where I needed one, I forgot mine because it's, it's just not something I was used to doing. And so I can completely understand how that has been completely creating havoc. But that's different. It's different to say we botched the way of doing it. We've made everyone miserable. That, that's one thing. It's another thing to say we don't need vaccination. We do. I think what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that there have been some good measures badly executed. There have been some bad measures executed period. Uh, and now is high time that we figured out which ones work, which ones make sense, which ones are palatable, and put in place the ones that work the best because they're still needed. I think you just summarized everything I said, but in about a tenth of the words. So thank you, <laughs> because that, that is, that's pretty much what I was trying to say. And it's very clear. It's, it's, it's very clear what we need to do. We need to take care of our indoor air quality, and we need to have people equipped with N95 masks that fit. And we could almost do away with everything else. We, st- we still need surveillance testing because we still want to know uh, where, where the virus is and we want to know how it's, how it's progressing, how it's evolving. It continues to surprise us. It continues to elude us. So we don't want to be overconfident. But in terms of people's daily lives, a sustainable way forward, learning to live with COVID is learning how to keep it under control without massive nuisances, especially ineffective ones. That's what learning to live with COVID ought to be. And so I I really want us to have a national conversation about what that term is supposed to mean, because every politician who uses it, it's been code for do nothing. And do nothing is going to have, it's going to have some really bad outcomes here and elsewhere. Yeah, tell me about that, because we were interviewed someone last week, we did a segment on on long haulers, long COVID, so to speak, and the idea that we don't really know. Now, for most people, that's not the case, but we don't really know individually what the impact of a COVID infection, even a BA2 infection might be. 
So the bad news on that, and it's 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 news that has taken me a long time to to digest because it really isn't great, is to imagine that COVID is not a respiratory virus. It pretends to be, and it does a good job of behaving like one, and that's certainly what puts people in hospital. So it's no laughing matter at all. And it's that respiratory phase of this virus that uh, that causes death. The problem is that quite apart from that, it's doing vascular damage. It's damaging your blood vessels and by extension, also damaging your brain. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, that's for keeps, you know, brain doesn't grow back. And, and that's concerning because it's independent of the respiratory phase. So you could have a mild cold and also uh, severe damage to your vascular system and, and, and even some great brain tissue loss. We don't know. It looks increasingly like maybe that happens to everybody. And the question is whether it's noticeable or not. Um, we might compare it as far as brain damage goes to a, a bang on the head. You can have a bad concussion and seem to be okay. You can have a moderate concussion and really be in a fog for months. And you can have a concussion bad enough where, you know, you, you never come all the way back. And that seems to be what COVID is doing in the background. And again, it's we don't know whether Omicron is doing less of it. It doesn't seem that way. We don't know whether vaccination means less long COVID. It doesn't seem that way. Omicron is still really new. It, and the word long and long COVID, of course, tells you you need some time uh, for all of this to shake out, to be able to see what's, what's residual. But this is when I say to people, you don't want COVID. You really don't. And you don't want your kids to just get it and get it over with. You really don't. Because it looks like everybody gets vascular and neurodamage to some extent, maybe to a minor extent. We don't know. But I don't want to find out the hard way. And I really want people to hear that. Colin Furness, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thanks. Sometimes it's easy to forget that it's only been 40 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. So much has changed in that time. We've seen a fundamental shift in geopolitics, the coming together of alliances such as NATO, the European Union, not lined up to support Ukraine in the face of Vladimir Putin's aggression. And lots of things that may have come as a bit of a surprise to any casual observer heading into this invasion. Russia's military incompetence and cowardice in targeting civilians, the sheer ability of Ukraine's forces to fight back, the leadership of President Vladimir Zelensky, the flood of people fleeing the country to the millions displaced internally, and the unprecedented sanctions levied against Russia, NATO's unity for that matter. The landscape has changed in 40 days at lightning speed. So what consequences has it already had and what may lie ahead? There are a few better places to answer those questions than my next guest. Joining me now is author and journalist David Frum. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, including of the recent article, A Nation Worth Fighting For, Ukraine. David Frum, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Pleasure to join. Uh, David, you've, you've paid a lot of attention to this over the last, uh, the last month and a bit. It's been 40 days now since Russia invaded Ukraine. Just how much of a jolt to the international system has it been? And, uh, and how surprised have you been by some of the reactions specifically from Western allies of Ukraine's? I, I, will, I remember very intensely the first day of the war. We had an event at my house um, and we had as guests at the event, two people who had been following the events very closely, um, Anne Applebaum and Radek Sikorsky. Anne Applebaum, of course, the author of uh, the important book about the Ukraine famine, Radek Sikorsky, former defense and foreign minister of Poland. I asked them to say a few words to uh, the guests, and, and the mood was very sober, as you can imagine. And after it was all over, uh, my wife turned to me and said, um, Putin's going to lose. And this, at the time, this was just an incredible prediction, uh, because we were talking about, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a total disaster, maybe, they, but the Russians were on, they, they were so dominant, they were they were the, the Goliath of the Ukrainian David. I, I said to her, but a week later, we were out for dinner on a date night, and I said, how, how, and at that point, it was clear this thing was turning into a Russian fiasco. How did you know? And she said, well, as, as the person who's in charge of planning things for this family, I can tell when something isn't well thought. <laughs> um, so it was, of course, a huge um a huge shock. I mean, the uh, the United States had been warning the Ukrainians for months that Russia was building forces on their border that were capable of the invasion. But of course, the Russians had built done a similar thing almost exactly a year ago in the spring of 2021. They'd also built up forces, and then they had built them down again without acting. And so many inside Ukraine wanted to believe that the danger would pass in uh, February of 2022 as well, and, and it did not. 
So that was the jolt. Um, and I think the jolt, not to the Ukrainians, but to the world, was um, the astonishing success. I mean, at terrible cost, but the astonishing success of, of the Ukrainian defense. And they've now beaten the Russians back from Kiev. The Russians are now going to dig in and try to attack in the eastern part of the country. And of course, they're waging a campaign of atrocity. Um, but the atrocities, I think, are a sign of, of their inner defeat. Given that, we're seeing now increasing pressure on allies in the West to up sanctions. You've already expressed yeah. some concern about the, the the very broad impact of these yeah. unprecedented sanctions. Uh, how effective this, have the sanctions been? And if we continue to impose more, do you see any downside at all? Well, I wrote early in the war about um, the central bank sanctions that had been imposed. And these, are, these were devastating. Um, and in fact, R- Russia thought it would be able to finance the war, but it built up more than 600 billion US dollars worth of, of reserves, euros, dollars, gold. Um, and, the Europe, and the European and United States central banks and other central banks too have frozen those reserves and Russia hasn't had access to them, which has caused the, the ruble cease to cease to be a convertible currency. But Russia has something going for it, which is the flow of money from the gas sales into Europe, natural gas, that are continuing. And that delivers them about three quarters of a billion US dollars a day. Um, uh, they're earning about 30% more than they were earning at this, uh, from their gas sales than, than they were earning this time last year. Um, and so if we're going to cut off their money, uh, energy is the next place we have to look. Today, though, we have seen some move in that direction, although the Germans continue to say that it's not feasible. Um, is, is cutting off energy sort of the red line? Do you think that that's going to be the litmus test of this unity? Well, it, it's hard to do. I, I, the Germans are not wrong when they say it's complicated. So, um, but it's becoming more possible every day. So Russia sells oil, which that's easy to replace because oil can come from anywhere in the world. Gas is trickier because gas moves along pipelines and the pipelines are built. You can't just swap out. You, you have to have, have, have a way to get gas from here to there. Um, you can comp- you can compress gas into a, into a liquid form and put it on a boat and float it. And uh, the United States and Canada, to a lesser extent, are, are doing that. But that takes time. For Europe, gas is a fuel to heat homes and, and um, cook food. They don't use it so much for heating and, and cooling for, to make electricity the way we do. Uh, they use it as a direct fuel to keep heat homes. As the weather warms, um, as the flow of liquid natural gas speeds up. And th- this is a place where Canada can play a big part. North America is the, is the superpower of natural gas. There's a giant amount of it underneath Canada and the United States. And it's possible to extract it, compress it, put it into, into liquid form, put it on a boat and send it elsewhere. But you need pipelines to ports and you need facilities to do the compression. And those facilities are complicated and expensive. And Canada has unfortunately, you know, um, been interrupted by protests and, and other kind of agitation. So we need to step all of that up. This is not anti-green uh, because gas can be a transitional fuel because the first goal is you get rid of coal. Gas is a better fuel than coal. Obviously, they're better fuels than gas. They're coming online. But if if we can get Europe's gas dependence down by summer, then you can impose really meaningful sanctions that will really hurt the Russians. Because you pointed out in the past that, that Canada's ability to be an effective part of this coalition helping Ukraine has been somewhat limited by our lack of defense spending in some way. There yeah. was a famous quote a few weeks ago by our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, Melanie Jolie, that we've become, you know, Canada's great at convening things. And that, of course, yeah. uh, got a lot right. of heat. What do you mean? How does Canada improve then when it comes to these global crises and, and being a more effective partner? Well, I think all the NATO countries have to hit that 2% of GDP target. Um, and that's Canada didn't the, the kinds of things that the British have been giving the Ukrainians, Canada can't give because Canada doesn't have them in the first place. Um, so, so uh, making getting to two percent of GDP on defense. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you're a homeowner, you spend one percent of the value of your house on maintenance. Um, you know, if you you're a giant democracy with a very large standard of living, you can afford to spend two percent of your of your income on insurance to protect the other ninety eight percent and your friends and allies. Um, Canada also has a role to play in in energy. Um, and again, I stress the gas part. To go back to Ukraine, you've written that it it is a a country worth fighting for. This is something you've talked about for a long time. Liberal democracy. We're, we're watching. A nation essentially, and this is quite a simplification of it, but a nation on the front lines of this fight, fighting yeah. for it. 
Um, how important then should we be taking them? Because there's already complaints about inflation, about gas prices and so on. Yeah. Is, this, is this a sacrifice worth making as a society for a country like Ukraine? Well, well the war is driving the inflation. Um, Russia and Ukraine together provide something like 25% of the world's exports of wheat. Um, uh, you know, Ukraine provides, uh, is the world's largest provider of sunflower oil, which is an important cooking fuel in, in less developed countries. Um, and, and of course, the, the food, uh, Russia is a huge producer of, of, of fuel, but also many, many materials. Um, so the war is causing shortages and driving prices, and you will not get those prices under control until peace is, is restored, until both Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports come back to the market. Um, so it's not either or, it's get end the war uh, and you'll alleviate a lot of the price pressure. The specific thing that I said in that, that article about um, Ukraine and fighting for it, and this is again a part where Canada's played an important story. Canada received a large Ukrainian immigration uh, after the Second World War, displaced people. And um, it received a large variety of Ukrainian politics, some of them very reactionary. And Ukraine has often suffered internationally because there have been very reactionary voices in the Ukrainian diaspora, many of them unfortunately based in Canada, who have offered a vision of, U of Ukraine's identity that is exclusive, that, is, that has been anti-Semitic and anti-Polish, um, and groups that had always lived as neighbors and that were separated um, in the chaos after World War II. Um, a Canadian business leader um, found, uh, who had um, achieved great success here, founded a group called the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter to um, open, I, this is, I read about this in this article, and I pay tribute to this man um, and his incredible generosity to re reconnect people who had, whose parents and grandparents had lived as, as neighbors and to build a vision of Ukrainian na nationhood that was open and liberal and democratic and tolerant. And that has been vindicated. You see it in, in the Ukraine of today. It's not just the president of Ukraine who's, who's Jewish. So it's the Ukrainian defense minister. So it was, um, there was a period in the early part of the Zelensky government where both the president and prime minister were Jewish at the same time, something that has not been seen in any country except Israel. Um, Ukraine has always been a melting pot that, um, you know, uh, Greeks along the coast, Poles in the Northwest, um, Jews in the cities, Armenians, Germans, Russians too. Um, and that, that vision of, Ukraine as a European country home to uh, free a free home to peoples of all kinds that is something that is worth fighting for and and, and there's been a Canadian and as I detail in that article there's been a Canadian donor who's been at the lead of of making that vision a reality speaking with author and journalist David Frum a staff writer at the Atlantic we're talking about uh, the 40 days now since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the significant impact it's had on geopolitics and other uh, matters, including here at home in Canada. When we come back, we'll look a little bit more into the Canadian government's reaction to the invasion and just how much more it needs to do or how much pressure it's under to do more in the near future. We'll be right back. And I'm back with David Frum, author and staff writer at The Atlantic, former presidential speechwriter. We've been talking about the invasion of Ukraine and the effectiveness of the response of the country's allies to it. I noticed today is the 73rd anniversary of the creation of NATO. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you been impressed by, by you know, NATO seemed a bit like a child lost for, for several years there. Now it seems yeah. to have found its purpose again. Is, is, that, is that a good thing? Um, that, that is a good thing. And the European Union, too, has demonstrated um, uh, unusual unity and, and effectiveness. Uh, you know, I think we've been through a period where um, – I, I don't think we've had a lot of self-esteem in the Western democratic world. Um, the rise of China, um, you know, the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that we've, we've really doubted our ability to do things. And it was, that's a quite a shift from the eighties and nineties when we felt so self-confident when we, when we believed in ourselves more. And, and this is a test. Can, uh, can the democratic countries together uh, work together and can, uh, democratic values prevail in the toughest, harshest kind of competition. And the success that we're seeing um, is is inspiring. And, and this is one of the things that the Ukrainians, this is a gift they are giving to the world. And it demands in return, not just support during the war, but um, reconstruction after. The reconstruction of Ukraine after this war is going to be a gigantic project. Um, and it's going to take a lot of help assistance. Um, it's going to take inter rapid integration of, of Ukraine into the European Union. Um, it's going to take uh, permission for Ukrainians to work in the countries of the European Union and send money home. 
and there's going to need to be a lot of aid, and there's going to need to be a united attitude to compel uh, Russia to pay reparations. And that's something uh, that this is my next article for The Atlantic that is appearing, I think, probably tomorrow or the next day. Um, you know, that means things like putting gases, that putting taxes on Russian gas exports, and then directing those payments to support reconstruction in Ukraine. Uh, but cities, uh, Ukraine cities have been smashed up. It's, it's port facilities, it's airports, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people have, been, have lost their homes. Those will all have to be rebuilt. So a Marshall Plan, in, in instance, for, for a place like Ukraine, and to some extent, do you think yeah. it's possible to... Is it possible to enforce these rules on Russia now? And how do you win the war? And this is an impossible question. Uh, mm-hmm. But where do you see the, the most effective way of neutralizing Russia right now that it's on the back foot? The most important thing to do right now is to continue to squeeze the Russian economy. And that's going to mean um, over the summer and fall, reducing Russian gas exports, um, ideally as close to zero as possible. Mm-hmm. Russian oil exports, again, oil is easier to replace than gas. You can You can cut Russia out of the world oil market, and there's plenty of oil in the world that you may have to pay somewhat more for it, uh, but you can get it. Uh, Europe does not have easy alternatives to Russian gas, which flows along pipelines. Um, But liquid natural gas from the Persian Gulf, from North America, that can begin to replace uh, Russian natural gas, and so can stepped-up use of wind wind turbines and and nuclear power. uh, That there are three nuclear plants in Germany that just went offline. Germany needs to bring them back. Belgium has seven nuclear plants and it's considering taking offline. They have to stay online. The French have to do the maintenance on their nuclear uh, plants to keep them working. Um, nuclear has to be part of the energy, the green energy mix of uh, tomorrow. And the, the, the bad tendency that you saw in Europe and especially in Germany to say, we're going to get rid of nuclear and replace it with Russian gas. We're going to pretend we're replacing it with green technology, but really we're replacing it with Russian gas. That was a bad, that was a bad choice. It was cheap, but it was bad. Um, so, and then we have to think about how we are going to squeeze resources out of Russia. To, but in the end, Russia is also going to be a very poor country after this war. And so the resources to help Ukraine are going to have to come from the democratic world. But it's going to be worth it. The thing, this is not going to be a sacrifice. Because Ukraine is a country full of highly educated, capable people who, because of their, they were trapped inside a post-Soviet economy, were earning artificially low wages, had an artificially distorted economy. And the analogy to what's going to happen in Ukraine is what happened after World War II in Italy. There was a, there was a big gap between the standards of living in Italy and, between, and Germany, France, and other Northern European countries. The flow of investment, the flow of buying and selling between Italy and Northern Europe, that triggered an economic boom in Italy between in the late 50s and early 60s, but everybody benefited because as the Italians got richer, they could buy, they could buy, you know, new German cars, they could buy new, uh, uh, they could buy French wheat, they could buy, um, they had better things to sell and better things to buy. And if, if Ukraine catches up, European sand is a flipping, that's not a drain on Europe, that is going to be an enormous boon and stimulus to Europe, and not just to Europe, to the whole world. Speaking with David Frum, author and staff writer at The Atlantic, we're talking about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine now 40 days in and the impact it's had in many parts of the world. Uh, quickly, when we come back, we'll talk about, briefly about Canada, uh, Canada's reaction and the fact that it came so soon after a very divisive issue, the convoy, uh, now sort of had a unifying issue, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we'll see what David thinks about uh, what impact that's had on government in this country. We'll be right back. I'm back with David Frum, author and staff writer at The Atlantic, former presidential speechwriter. We're talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the many impacts it's had around the world. What have you made so far of, uh, because you did write quite extensively about the free quote unquote freedom convoy, this came right on the heels of it. It seemed to change the conversation almost overnight, at least in this country. Um, How have you, what have you made of the government's uh, performance so far on Ukraine and how does it dovetail with what happened during the convoy? Well, the Canadian government has said has said all the right things, um, but it has not done the right things. Not because it isn't willing, but because it hasn't. Canada has not invested in the capacities, um, and you know it's been a long time that Canada's under invested in defense. And the Trudeau government, this the current Trudeau government, has certainly been an under investor. Um, and Canada has not been doing its part to um, get its gas to market. Uh, but one of the things that we can all do is uh, the awareness of these terrible atrocities of the sufferings of people of these uh, of these um the, ma- the, the crimes against civilians um that is something that we you know uh 
keep the attention of the world on. Um, the Russians are going to lie and lie and lie. One of the things that has been heartening is that their social media propaganda that had so much negative impact um, in the 2010s seems suddenly to be losing its power as people wake up and understand how the Russians use these methods, how, um, how they try to deceive, how they try to make it seem like they're victims, you know, shot themselves in the head and then handcuffed themselves. Um, uh, that, you know, that, that, uh, it, just as they used to say, the Syrians gassed themselves, which they didn't. The Russians gassed them, or at least the Russian clients, client in Syria gassed them. When, I mean, you wrote a lot about this back in 2014 when uh, during the Little Green Men and how effective that uh, yeah, that information yeah. campaign was by Russia. It's been interesting to see it backfire so badly this time, or just how effective, to some extent, the Ukrainians have been. And President Zelensky in particular, he was at the Grammys last yeah. night. I mean, that's, that's yeah. remarkable to think of a Ukrainian leader speaking at the Grammys. Well, th- there's a famous story, a true story, about Ronald Reagan of someone saying to him, I I don't understand how you can be an actor and be president of the United States. And Reagan replied, that's funny. I don't understand how you can't be an actor and be president of the United States. And, and there's something about that in Zelensky. I mean, he understands modern communication. Um, and one of the things that Zelensky does in his communication that I've remarked is how he uses a single word. Um, his most, his first and most powerful appearance was that that appearance with his uh, with his core team in um, in the dark, the, the Russians are spreading the claim that he had run away, and so he appeared in a very visible Kiev street uh, streetscape. Uh, I was able to visit twice in the uh, 2010s, and I, I instantly recognized that view. Anyone who knows the city knows it. And there he is with his core team, and he just uses the Ukrainian word "tut" or "here," and just says, "I'm here." He's here. Here's here. He just says that one word over again. He's, he released a video the other day on the single word was and he spoke this one in english um and how you know what it means when you say this was my kitchen this was my home this was my and then it becomes increasingly powerful this was my dog and he shows a dog that's been killed this was my child and uh and that single word was becomes the theme of his speech so he does this very effectively um and what the ukrainians are teaching us all is that in these contests of information truth is the single most powerful asset um, you can have. And the Ukrainians have truth on their side and the Russians have only lies. As a few last questions, we did see um, a reminder yesterday, at least in Hungary and, and in Serbia, that, that Putin is not without his allies. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of impact do you think the election of Viktor, the re-election of Viktor Orban will have on this unity we've been seeing so far within Europe? Well, Hungary is, of course, a member of both NATO and the European Union. Um, I don't think people understand how economically dependent Hungary is on the European Union. When the, the, you know, the Hungarians do all the, I, I was able to spend some time there in 2016. They do a lot of boasting and chess beating. But Hungary gets 3% of its budget in direct transfers from the European Union. How big is that? That's, the, that's how much the United States spends on the Pentagon. It's like they, they get the Pentagon for free, courtesy. And all these grifters and extremists and freeloaders who show up and live on Orban's hospitality are all living on money given Orban by the European Union. Um, But the difference in Orban and Putin is that Orban first leads a small and um, weak country. Second, that Orban knows that. Uh, that, That Orban's secret power has always been that he understands how much he can poke uh, the rest of Europe and where he has to stop. Um, and it's also true because Hungary is a member of the European Union, because they are subject to the jurisdiction of the European um, codes and human rights and European courts, there are things they can't do. I mean, Orban uh, has manipulated the press, uh, gerrymandered the election, um, silenced opponents, but um, he's never killed anybody. Uh, and he's never, he's never even uh, falsely put anybody in prison because he can't do that. Because if, if he tries to imprison someone, that person can appeal the sentence to a European court. And unless he's willing to give up on his massive subsidies from the European Union and leave the European Union, uh, he has to ultimately accept their court's jurisdiction over him. So Or Orban is a mischief maker and an opportunist, um, but he is not a global security problem in the way that obviously the nuclear armed Putin at the head of one of the world's great um, energy producers is a global security problem. A last question, David, and thank you again for your time. Um, we're 40 days in. 
I don't want to ask you to get out a crystal ball, but this has truly been one of the more impactful 40 days in my my memory. Yeah. And that includes 2008, that includes 9-11, that includes, yeah. uh, how do you see it? Um, sorry. Uh, uh, the, I, I fear, I, I'm, I'm not a military expert at all, and I'm not going to pretend to be one, but what I fear is that the war having gone very fast now begins to go quite slow. Um, and that the Russians dig and hold um, and that the, the pace of operations subsides, the, the Russian casualty bring their casualty counts under control, and they confront the Ukrainians with the task of now going on offense against them to drive the Russians out of Ukrainian territory. And that's a much harder project that, that is ahead for the Ukrainians. Um, so I think we're into a long period of grind, both militarily, there will be more atrocities. Russians kidnap people from Ukrainian territory and um, deport them to Russia. Uh, and we're in for a period of economic grind where the, the, the um, it, energy and finance will be very, very important. And so one of the things that we as citizens of democratic countries can do is be patient, um, understand why we're paying more uh, at the pump, that understand that um, why we're paying more at the grocery store, that this is, these are things that there's a limit to what our own governments can do. Uh, and we have to uh, remember that uh, you add up the economies of the European Union countries, the United States, Canada, Japan, Britain, other allies, and you're looking at an assembly that is 25 times the economic clout of Russia. Um, so let's let's put those resources to work to help our friends, uh, to help them battle democracy, and then to help Ukraine rebuild. David Frum, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Meantime, just when you thought things in Ukraine couldn't get more grim, Moscow faced a new wave of global revulsion and accusation of war crimes today. After they pulled out of the outskirts of Kiev in a city called Bucha, it was found there were many corpses on the streets of what appeared to be civilians, and some seemingly had been killed deliberately at close range. The images of those bodies out in the open certainly led to calls for tougher sanctions against the Kremlin, and namely a cutoff of fuel imports from Russia. That really is a big move. It hasn't happened yet. The UN's top human rights official is calling for an independent and effective investigation into what happened in that Ukrainian town of Bucha. The images of civilians lying dead on the streets and in improvised graves in the town of Bucha in Ukraine are horrifying. Reports emerging from this and other areas raise serious and disturbing questions about possible war crimes, grave breaches of international humanitarian law, and serious violations of international human rights law. The UN's top human rights official there. Germany reacted today by expelling 40 Russian diplomats. U.S. President Joe Biden said Russian leader Vladimir Putin should be tried for war crimes. Here at home, the House of Commons unanimously adopted a motion today to condemn, quote, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is in Finland. She was condemning the Russian attacks today as abhorrent and senseless and says new Canadian sanctions are coming against Russia as a result. These are clearly war crimes. These are clearly uh, crimes against humanity. And it is important for Canada to play its role in making sure that there is accountability um, for these acts. And these acts cannot go unpunished. Well, for more on this, let's go to Ukraine. Joining me now is Dimitro Guerin. He's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He's also from the city of Mariupol, which you may know has been under siege for weeks now. Dimitro Guerin, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, and hi. The most obvious question, uh, I, I realize how much outrage there's been in Ukraine. There's been international condemnation of what was discovered in Bucha over the weekend. Uh, just your thoughts on what we witnessed and, and, and what it signifies now. What, what should we do now? It's just the beginning. Our general prosecutor said today that uh, we are so shocked of uh, Bucha photos, and uh, that's just, on, just because we haven't seen photos yet. We have uh, all the occupied territory, uh, like on Kyiv region, that was uh, that were the occupied. All of them are like Bucha. Uh, we see, of course, we clearly see now, all of us, and you and us, all of us, that it's uh, war crimes and uh, it's uh, something that we can call genocide now. And I think the Canadian people who live with the uh, Ukrainians for hundreds of years already, more than a million Ukrainians in Canada, they know 
the stories about Holodomor, about Hunger, and about Russia, who wants to just to kill all Ukrainians mm -hmm. and Ukrainian idea and Ukrainian people. Not the first time in the history. So we will have more. It will be more horrible. And uh, uh, Mariupol is uh, much worse and much bigger scale. And of course, Ukrainian society is totally shocked. People couldn't, you know, just uh, a month ago, a little bit more than a month ago, people in Ukraine mostly couldn't imagine the war, real war between Russia and uh, Ukraine. And uh, uh, like majority, I think, thought that it's a big uh, geopolitical game. And now uh, we are in the new reality, in the reality of Bucha, Irpeng, Gastomir, Baradyanka, Mariupol. And it's not the war anymore, and it's not the mass murdering anymore, as I said, like a month ago. Uh, it's uh, already genocide now. Because we've seen, I mean, we last we spoke, we spoke about Mariupol, and already we were talking about war crimes because of the targeting of civilians. They had just targeted um, the theater where people had been sheltered. They had targeted maternity ward uh, earlier. Um, I understand they've tried to build, to at least reach, the Red Cross has tried to reach Mariupol. That still has not happened, I understand. There's still, Mariupol is still effectively cut off. The city of half a million people, or was, is still effectively cut off from, uh, from any, sort of, any sort of aid. Yeah, there are still uh, not less than 100,000 people. Uh, and uh, uh, there is hunger, real hunger. And uh, people already uh, eat fats in Mariupol. And uh, we know what news we will hear next, like in a week. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, this level of uh, insanity. Uh, and uh, we see they, that the hunger is uh, the idea of Russian, is their goal. So they don't want to give these green corridors. Uh, from the first day, they said they will, uh, they will open them. And uh, they are shelling, you know, the, on the first day when they said we're opening, beginning of March, we're opening green corridors, they shout the points of uh, where people gather it to these buses. So they, their idea is to destroy the city. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the only like uh, very harsh and uh, forcing from uh, Black Sea countries, Turkey, First of all, and European countries, uh, Greece, because in Mariupol there is a Greek community, mm -hmm. and of course, America and Canada together have to, you know, to just to force to open these corridors and to make a uh, marine mission, uh, sorry, a sea mission, not marine, mm -hmm. sea mission, uh, like uh, ships to Berdyansk uh, uh, port. And uh, because Mariupol port is heavily mined, uh, and get people from Mariupol through this uh, Berdyansk port. I guess, Dimitri, what you're saying is that we've reached a point now where, even though for those of us sitting here have watched a war evolve over 40 days now, what we've seen in Bucha to some extent changes things in Ukraine a bit. It changes the idea of what's at stake here even further. This is a fight for survival. This is a fight for survival. And uh, uh, yesterday, uh, on, uh, the state news agency in Russia, they had uh, like a program article uh, that uh, like all the Ukrainian nation is Nazis. That's like white population is Nazi population. And we all, I think, understand what does this mean. And we all understand that uh, the standards, state standards for mass graves that Russia uh, approved like a month before the beginning of the war, like in January. Uh, now we understand that uh, these standards, they needed uh, them not for their soldiers, but for Ukrainians. We've seen Russian forces withdraw from the Kyiv area which is one of the reasons, obviously, we're seeing uncovering these horrific scenes in places like Bucha, which is just a tiny suburb compared to a place like Mariupol, which is a large, relatively large city. What, what do you think is happening now? What happens to this fight now? Are, do, do you know the East? You know Donbass. 
do you think the Russians are really moving back across to try Donbass again? Or, or is yes, this all yes. just a start? Yeah, that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening. They're regrouping and uh, they want uh, to uh, have, uh, like, to make uh, operation, uh, to enforce operation uh, on Donbass uh, and uh, uh, to uh, start a new fight there. Uh, enforcing their position, enforcing their troops. And given what we've seen already in places like Bucha, um, the level of violence we'll, we'll potentially witness in the in the east and on the coast might might be worse than what we've already seen. Of course, we just don't see what's going on there because uh, by my my parents left Mariupol like a week ago. And uh, what I hear from them, uh, it's uh, these stories. And uh, uh, you cannot, you know, if Russian soldiers are on the street, you cannot photo, they will kill you at the same moment. Uh, and uh, what I hear from them, it's that Bucha, it's uh, easy walk compared to Mariupol. Much worse in Mariupol, much bigger scale. All the city in bodies. I'm speaking with Dimitro Guerin. He's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He is from Mariupol. His parents, I'm very happy to hear you. Last we spoke, you hadn't talked to your parents in a few days. So I'm very happy to hear that your parents are okay and they're out. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about, about Mariupol itself, what's happened there, and also what the West needs to do to provide Ukraine with what it needs to defend itself. That's after this. I'm back with Dimitro Guerin. He's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He's originally from the city of Mariupol. His parents were there until recently, having managed to get out. Uh, Dimitro, that, that's, it's great to hear what have they, that they've made it out, but what have they told you about what, what it was like in that city for the, for the several weeks that they were there while it was under bombardment? It was a day, you know, day-by-day life in very medieval conditions. They didn't have, like, Below zero temperatures, no any communications, gas, water, electricity. They used water from radiator system. Uh, uh, of course, no heating. Uh, they uh, melt snow for uh, for to, to have a water. Uh, and uh, the street fight never stopped, like weeks and weeks. And you cannot just go out uh, to the street because it's street fight, and they use tanks during the street fight. And, uh, you know, they sat, mostly they sat in, uh, in the flat because basements uh, are not, the basements of buildings, they're not enough for uh, like several hundreds of thousands of people. So they were uh, in just an usual apartment in a multi-story building. And uh, one moment they left their apartment because a uh, uh, Russian army troop make a, uh, uh, like fire, uh, used uh, apartment uh, in this building for uh, like fire point, you know, to, to they put their machine gun. And uh, uh, they left uh, this building, lived some time with friends. So it's, it's like, you know, you're trying to uh, stay alive. It's the only thing you can do and you're trying to do. And uh, you understand that the next time you uh, will need to go outside will be the last moment. And uh, one, just one, one day, one moment, the line of fire, a uh, place where real fight is, moved a little bit. And they just uh, jumped in the car and uh, just went out. It, it's it's miracle. It's real miracle. Because it's, it, it was when, yeah, it was when, it was possible, just a moment. It's, uh, I don't think it's uh, some kind of real, frankly speaking. I can't even believe now it's, it's, it really happened. That they got mm-hmm. out, that they got out, yeah. Yeah, that they got out. Because 100,000 people in Mariupol, they are still there. Yeah. Uh, and they cannot get out. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's really... I, I, I don't, see, there is no city anymore. We'll have to understand. It's, it was like Manchester. Half a million people city. There is no city anymore at all. No buildings, no hospitals, no universities, nothing. Schools, nothing at all. Everything is bombed. Everything is ruined. It's like Grozny, like Aleppo. Right. And given what we've seen in Bucha, we can only imagine what else may be there too. 
No, in Mariupol, in, in, in uh, meaning of destroying the city, no, much worse. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. I mean, given what we've seen in Bucha, we can only imagine what other, uh, what other yeah, atrocities yeah. may be there as well, along with all the destroyed buildings. And I guess for listeners to understand, your parents grew up in, in you know, parents are Russian speaking. They grew up in what had been when Mariupol was part of the Soviet Union. I mean, they, you told me, I think last time that, that you know, they were never, they didn't see Russia as an enemy per se until you know the a country that would come in and do this never. to their city to their city no never they uh, my father is a, a soviet officer in the army officer uh, my mother uh, grew up uh, in belarus in mariupol in like in, in different uh, places in uh, soviet union my father from is originally from kharkiv uh, and uh, uh, they are always they, they are russian speaking and they were always uh, had sympathies to Russia, and uh, they refused to leave Mariupol because they couldn't believe that the uh, Russian army would bomb and destroy the city. I understood it clearly, and uh, they refused to leave. They said, "No, it's impossible. It's just impossible. You are just, uh, you know, stop telling this nonsense." And yes, now? and uh, now we see. Yeah. What can the now you've heard a lot of words today from President Biden, from Canada, from lots of places, lots of condemnation about what was discovered in Bucha. What does the West need to do that now, though, other than talk? West says about tells about recognizing of war crimes, and it's really important. Uh, and of course, we have to do it because we all see it's war crimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a different goal in Ukraine. We need to stop war crimes. And we now, I think that all the world sees, because before all Ukrainians understood it, but not all the world. And now, at least, we all understand that this war will be finished, will have military solutions. Military, not diplomatic. It's not possible. Uh, when their news state news agency published yesterday published uh the text program text that all the ukrainian population is nazis we all understand what does this mean and we all understand what the standards for mass graves means for whom are these standards that they approved before month before, before the uh, like in january right. month before the war and uh, we need uh, to stop war crimes. And that means that we need to kick Russian troops out of Ukrainian territory. And that means that we need tanks, we need planes, we need uh, sea rockets against uh, ships, we need uh, uh, drones and uh, uh, rockets uh, against air, I mean, uh, air defense, rocket defense. So we need weapons. Like Mr. Zelensky said to, to Mr. Biden, the first day of the war, we need bullets, not a taxi. And uh, we are in the situation when everybody sees that Ukraine can beat Russia. And now is the moment where everybody have to agree that sanctions is not enough, that embargo to oil and gas and coal, it's already not the question of money or heating, it's the question of it's ethical question now and uh, but we have to stop this war all of us have to stop this war on ukrainian territory we cannot give this war to spread all over the europe because it will you felt last we spoke i asked you whether you felt ukraine was standing alone and you said yes and i'm wondering if you still feel that way in some way in some way we are alone when we say, "Hey guys, uh, they are trying to, uh, they are trying to kill us all," in this moment we are alone because nobody trusts us. And then everybody sees photos from Bucha. And uh, when we say, "Hey, we need uh, more uh, heavy weapon to kick Russian troops out from Ukraine," and uh, everybody says, "No, it will escalate situation." Sorry, where more? What escalation are we talking about? It's it's not even a mass murder. It's Srebrenica now. So where is the, the, the line of this escalation? Nuclear weapon? Oh, I think Russia will use nuclear weapon of Mar on Mariupol because how 
other way they will hide what they did. So Which, everybody yeah. now to understand to understand where is the light. Dimitro Garin, as always, thank you for your time. I'm very happy to hear that your parents made it out of Mariupol safe. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. You're always welcome. Well, the third and final installment of the most comprehensive assessment of the state of the world's knowledge about climate change was released today. The third study from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change really cast doubt on whether nations can keep global warming well below two degrees Celsius this century, or ideally no higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Here's the UN Secretary General talking about the findings of this, this report today. It's time to stop burning our planet and start investing in the abundant renewable energy all around us. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. Some stern words there from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Now, the report says that efforts to cut emissions require a swift end to fossil fuels and an increase in renewable energy, among other measures. The good news is that solutions for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and fighting climate change are available across almost all spheres of human activity, it found. So there's some optimism here. The question, though, is that the limited progress to date means how quickly can it actually be scaled up? Um and that is the key question. Now, the author of one of those chapters, one of the lead authors of one of those chapters in this new report is a Canadian. Joining me now is, uh, again, the lead author of one of the chapters in this final report. Patricia Perkins is a professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Toronto. Patricia Perkins, thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm glad we're devoting attention to climate change today. Absolutely. Tell me a bit about this. This has been a, this third report is a, is a very interesting one because of the subject matter that it deals with. Uh, but what is the key message coming out of this third report from the, uh, from the IPCC? I think the message, just as with the other two thirds of, of this report, this is the final third of the sixth assessment report coming out this year. And the, the previous one was long ago in 2014. The message is, Climate change is pressing, it's urgent, it really needs to be addressed, especially if we plan to meet the Paris Agreement target of no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade of global warming before the year 2050. We have to unite as consumers, as voters, as government leaders, as NGO activists, in all the hats that we wear to address this need for an energy transition away from fossil fuels right away, right away. The other piece of the message is that it's possible to cut human emissions of uh, greenhouse gases by 40 to 70% in the next few years. The, the technologies and the possibility of doing that are in our grasp. We know how it can be done. And so this, this third part of the report details in uh, incredible, <laughs> many, many pages, many chapters, sector by sector, and also on the demand side, the consumer side, how that can happen and exactly how much, how many gigatons of, of carbon can be reduced from the atmosphere in the next few years, sector by sector. One of the things that's interesting about these pract about these these reports is that people often judge them without looking at them. Um, how would you tell those who worry about the costs of this transition, the bumpiness of this energy transition? What within the report tries to address some of those some of the recalcitrance that we see around this issue? I think people are afraid about climate change because it's um, it manifests itself in quite fearsome ways from the wild, wildfires to the floods and droughts that are increasingly happening all over the world. And the impression I think many people have is that, oh, I must change my behavior. I have to cut back. I need to, you know, change my lifestyle in ways that I'm not going to like because there's a worse fear lurking <laughs> lurking uh, that's going to affect us all. And I think that the, this, this report doesn't come from that place of 
a politics of fear, but more from a politics that people are innovative, people are creative, local solutions are already being developed. And um, if there is, uh, if there are equity enhancing policies, those are also climate forward policies. If there is participation in government, then the government will be better able to lead the energy transition. We don't need to be afraid of losing our jobs. What we need to be looking towards is the possibility of working in jobs that, that don't lead into a cul-de-sac. So um, I think that uh, the chapter that I worked on, which was about social social aspects of mitigation, really emphasizes the the fact that human well-being for all in the world can be provided through services that are uh, generated through low carbon, low emission technologies. And there are, there are bumps, uh, there are, you know, there are ways to facilitate that through such things as making technology, low, low emission technologies available worldwide through, um, the infrastructure changes that make it possible for people to get where they want to go, grow food, um, heat their houses, uh, do the things that they need to do in low carbon emitting ways. Those, those are the challenges that we need to address collectively. The one thing you did mention, though, is that is that this is a more optimistic report uh, in many ways. As you mentioned earlier, this this is not about the politics of fear. This is about the encouragement of change to some extent. What did you find within your chapter that would really be the cornerstones of that optimism? For me, I mean, all my life I've been working on questions of climate justice, environmental justice, and it was really uh, encouraging and, and um, I mean, I knew that the literature reinforces the idea that equity is an important component, political participation and engagement of people across the, the income levels is important for their social trust and, and ability to, to believe that governments are really looking out for them. But from the economics literature to the psychology literature to the political science literature all across the, the social sciences, there's just such a strong confirmation that uh, social equity reinforces the capacity and the motivation to tackle climate change, that explicit attention to equity is essential if we want policies that will take, that take on climate change to be effective and socially acceptable. And that social equity in turn reinforces the capacity to re reduce emissions. Are you optimistic given the landscape now? Or are you optimistic that that's going to happen in the time that uh, this report suggests it has to happen in? I've been uh, concerned about climate change for my whole career, really. And I wouldn't, I think optimism is, um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You have to be hopeful. I think it's more of a social and a political question than a, uh, about, you know, we don't, that there are challenges. We know what the challenges are. We know how to overcome those challenges. The, the hope lies in our ability to work collectively to, to do that. I'm hopeful. Patricia Perkins, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.